You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, this is Aaron. I'm coming to you with our second episode this week from the Standard Spa in Miami Beach. Um, basically, the Standard Hotels decided, hey, we should sponsor this book fair and maybe we should bring Aaron down and he will do some interviews. So I did a series of interviews here. This is the second one. Uh, this is with Alexander Hamon, who's a writer I've admired for many years, probably since his first fiction collection. Um, it's not even a collection. It's sort of an interlinked story. It's called The Question of Bruno. He has a collection of his nonfiction out. Uh, came out a year or two ago. Uh, it's a lot of work that previously appeared in The New Yorker, including a, a piece of nonfiction called The Aquarium that I recommend you read before you're listening to this. If you have not heard it before, it's a really incredible piece. Um, but uh, I want to thank him for coming in on short notice. And I want to thank, of course, Standard Hotels, and more specifically, the Standard Spa in Miami Beach. You can go to standardhotels.com to see more stuff from the fair and get the best rates at their hotels in New York, L.A., and Miami. If you don't have the Standards app, One Night Standard, download it now for spontaneous same-night stays at incredible rates. It's actually a very cool app. I do recommend it. Uh, here's Alexander Hamon. Welcome. Alexander Hamon. The place I'd like to start off was uh, one of the uh, first things you um, say in your uh, your first nonfiction book, which came out uh, about a year ago, a couple years ago, is that you were very uh, hesitant to write nonfiction, which surprised me as someone who'd been following your work for a while because I, I felt like a nonfictional specter kind of loomed over a lot of it. So what 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 the hesitation to actually go for it? It's not hesitation as much as I need to be talked into writing uh, nonfiction. That is, it has to be solicited because the natural uh, process is usually, and there are many exceptions to this, is I just sit on it and wait for it to mature into some kind of fiction. Some stories cannot be converted into fiction, and, and I can identify that right off. And so then I would recognize them, and I would pitch them and offer them or just write them and then try to place them. But most of the time, by and large, my drive is to tell stories, and, uh, and this, the distinction between fiction and nonfiction is not really all that relevant. Some of the stories are interesting, but I tend to think that they could be enhanced by fictionalization. And so I, I, and I'm also lazy, <laughs> and so I just uh, sit on them, unless you know someone talks me into writing them. 
quite a few pieces from that book were actually solicited by editors. I think three. Um, I was telling a story uh, orally, and they said, why don't you write it down, and we'll, we'll see if we can publish it. And that's how it worked. In that sense, um, I tell true stories, but I do not necessarily write them down until I f- feel compelled to do so. When you've taken a story and it's had a non-fictional seed and you've uh, morphed it into fiction, is it therefore off-limits to uh, do it again as non-fiction? Well, it's probably. I don't like telling the same story twice, even in, in different versions. It's, yeah. Uh, but I was recently, I, I wrote a non-fiction piece that I submitted to a big magazine. They were concerned that they couldn't fact-check certain things because all the I, I told the stories that were passed on to me and I read her book. In any case, they were reluctant to publish it as nonfiction, and so they rejected it, um, which I didn't take personally. But then I tried to rewrite it as fiction, fiction only in the sense that I added pieces, uh, you know, where I f- saw there might be space for yeah. enhancement. Just writing it as, as fiction allowed me to understand certain things that were inherent and, um, and possible in that space. When you take a, a, a non-fictional story and, and you add that enhancement layer on top of it, what, like what, what often are the things that need to be enhanced or that you have the urge to, to shift? Well, I like to structure my stories, uh, whether they're fiction or non-fiction. Uh, and fiction is more flexible because I can add mm-hmm. a whole character, a whole period, a whole city to the story just to have some kind of pattern or, you know, a rhyming, as it were, emerge. And so with fiction, I have more elements to work with. The advantage of nonfiction is really that I do not have to make that up. That is, the by the time I'm telling the story, whether orally or, uh, or I'm writing it, the structure has already established itself. There's a logic to it that I have identified by virtue of telling the story. I read uh, the, your first book, The Question of Bruno, when I was in college. And uh, the central story is about a uh, young man uh, living in Sarajevo who comes to Chicago, and uh, the conflict in Sarajevo erupts shortly after he arrives, and he's stuck in Chicago, which, as far as I know, is more or less your own story. Um, and it's a story that appears again in the book of my lives, but in a fairly different context and a different tone. When I was reading The Question of Bruno, I, I almost read it as nonfiction. Has there been a sort of a misperception in your fiction that it, that it is nonfiction? Well, I think it has been misperception, although I mean, it makes sense. I know why people think that, that it's somehow it's a concealed autobiography and that, you know, that I'm telling the story of my life by way of fiction. And I do not resent it necessarily, but it does annoy me <laughs> because I can write nonfiction. I can yeah. tell the story of my life outright. Yeah. So what might be the reason for turning it into a story? One of the reasons is that it, it is not me. I, I start, you know, one set of elements are related to the experiences in my life, right? But if they're not enough, then I have to add another set of elements. And so if you add one, you already converted it into fiction, legally speaking, right? Yeah. So I have a set of elements that come from, from experience, and that set of elements is inherent in language. I mean, language is always infused with our experience. You know, I've, 
if I ever I write a story in which Miami figures these days here will play a role, right? Yeah. And so I could invent a different reason for coming to Miami or I can just claim to have come or someone has come to Miami for a book festival. Now, is that, you know, fiction or nonfiction? When you first sat down and you took this, looked over this uh, series of essays which appear, I think New Yorker probably has the most of them, but they've, uh, Grant uh, has one. They're, they're from a variety of publications. Um, what was what was the feeling when you reread uh, your uh, non-fictional opus together, or uh, not opus, oeuvre together? But the feeling is, I have a book, it's always a pleasant feeling. The yeah. magic... But the joy of writing for me, one of the joys is that you make something out of nothing. It's, and then this thing exists. And you know, the, the manuscript is the first physical emanation of this mind project. And then it's published and it no longer belongs to me. And if you know, I'm at the end of my life, those books will live on. Yeah. At least as material objects, maybe no one will read them at all. But they will exist somewhere as objects. Um, which is for at least until all the objects on this planet are gone. <laughs> so it, there's this pleasure in recognizing that the conversion of experience into story has been completed. Now it is, the story is in a physical container. It's interesting to me uh, when you look at some of these issues uh, in an area like uh, uh, the, the former Yugoslavia, which is a much smaller population, the human story is much easier sort of to understand than the economic story, which is uh, what do you do with a bunch of people who've been trained in militias and are have been fighting a war for a bunch of years and, and don't really have any way to make an income? It's quite logical that things like cigarette smuggling, human trafficking, uh, you know, various military-like uh, operations sort of take that, that place in the economy. Um, but But I'm interested for you... You left Bosnia how many years ago? 24, in March. When you think about these issues, do you think about them as like, hey, uh, as a, a Bosnian? Like, do you, uh, yeah, that's I a do, weird yeah. question. But no, it, I know what you mean. I do. You, I'm, I'm in constant contact. I write in Bosnian. I write a column in Bosnian. I go to Bosnia often. I, I'm in contact with people there all the time. Um, you know, I work with them. Uh, one of my closest friends is... Um, the president of the of the oppositional party and he's in the Bosnian parliament. I know the stories. I, I work most because I had started writing as a journalist in Bosnia, really. My friends are either still journalists or former journalists, but tapped into the sources of all yeah. kinds. And so when I go to Sayevo, I, you know, land and I go to the party or to have uh, coffee or lunch with friends right away. There's no... There's very little catching up to do, and I get a lowdown instantly. What I don't know, the newest developments, the past few weeks, what I hadn't read or already heard um, from other people. So I I, I, I know those um, things constantly. It matters to me greatly. It matters to me as a Basi, but also it matters to me because I can connect it all. I can connect in my mind, and this perhaps it's a it's a a writer's deformation. I I have a narrative in my head how it is all logically connected. The war in Bosnia, the abandonment of Bosnian Muslims. Hey, it's Aaron. I'm going to pause things here quick for a quick word from our sponsor, Howl.fm. 
Howl is a brand new app and website that changes the way you think about podcasts. It's basically Netflix, but for podcasts. So if you become a Howl Premium subscriber, you get exclusive access to dozens of original miniseries, audio documentaries, and comedy albums. They have the whole archives of some of the biggest podcasts, some of my favorite podcasts, uh, WTF with Mark Marin. Anyone who listens to the show knows we basically stole his entire format and everything about the show from him. Thank you, Mark Marin. Uh, Earwolf shows like Comedy Bang Bang and probably my favorite podcast running, How Did This Get Made? I've already uh, achieved the completest badge with How Did This Get Made? But you... If you are a new listener, could listen to their entire archive, and I'm sure you will want to. They also do original miniseries. They've got the first one is The Complete Woman. It's a hilarious send-up of 1960s self-help records featuring the love and marriage expert Maribel May. Check that out. Um, so anyway, I want you to go to howl.fm. That's H-O-W-L dot F-M. Use the promo code LONGFORM. You'll get one free month of Howl Premium, and you'll be supporting the show. And if you want to keep doing it and keep it on your iPhone, keep it on your Android phone, it's only $4.99 a month. What a great deal. Thank you, Howl FM. I'm interested in what your writing ambitions were like as a high school and college student? Well, the job of a writer as it is here was not available. It didn't really work that way. Um, Because when I was in high school, it was still the time of socialist Yugoslavia. And so to be a a paid writer in a public space, you have to have been approved pretty much um, by the state. You have to to have been vetted or you were a dissident. Um, and the dissidents were, you know, many of them were respectable, respectable. The dissidents is a strong word, but people who were not part of that machinery. Some of them were distant, some of them were just outside of it. And those people couldn't find distribution, really? No, they could, but they were going to be beaten up, not beaten up. And, I mean, metaphorically speaking, newspapers would be criticized. It was much more free than the Soviet Union. People would not be put away for what they write. Some did. There was a category of, uh, of verbal... Um, crime where, you know, writing bad poetry about Tito could put you in jail. But those, those are a relatively small number of people. Outside of that, people could... It was much more free than for the, the Soviet Union. But either way, I did not... I was a younger generation, and, and the, the, all of the edifice started coming apart when I was in high school, really. And so neither the um, state-vetted writer position nor someone who's, you know honorably and um, uh, and admirably operating on the fringes of everything and based on principles didn't really interest me. I was, on the one hand, it seemed that a new way of writing and thinking and operating in public space was available. I didn't formulate it to myself, but I was into rock and roll at that time. I wasn't going to go on writers' conferences, deliver papers that questioned the legitimacy of t- the Tito cult. Yeah, fuck that. I was into, you know into uh, rock and roll and swans and sonic youth and, and the local equivalents of that uh, and then some people, bands that were not like that at all. So I had no interest in being a writer in this sort of uh, um, you know sense of, of being cultural. Was rock and roll freer because of its non-literal nature? It was freer because it operated in basements um, and also before and the, the, the people who were this is the advantage of was the advantage of youth culture. No one pays attention to it except the young people. And once they pay attention to it, um, it is because it has already established its, itself in various ways. Um, so, you know, bands were playing in, in, in basements in these 
holes in the walls. And by the time that was troubling to uh, the uh, machinery of the state, and it was too late. It was too late because it was already formulated in many ways, but also by that time, this is mid-'80s and late-'80s, the state was at its deathbed, and so they couldn't really do anything to us. I mean, we got slapped for doing this and that. I was detained. It's in the book of my life. Yeah. But it was over, and we knew it. It was a fuck you. I had no fear of them. Well, the dominant theme in the book is kind of the idea of underemployment and sort of a lack of opportunity of any kind, whether not just, hey, there's no writing jobs, but also no other jobs really either. Well, I mean, this is, you know, um, when an order, a political system is disintegrating that is disorienting to many people and frightening because the future is highly uncertain. But at the same time, a space of liberty. It seemed to us we were wrong, sadly, but it seemed possible, and it was possible, that a different outcome could be affected uh, by sheer will and energy and and commitment. And, uh, you know, we had different visions of what Yugoslavia and Bosnia would be or could be. Um, and we were fighting both fascists and, you know, the old order. Um, it, for a few years, maybe five, and this is at the uh, height of my youth, it seemed that a third outcome was possible. It was defeated, but, you know, it was a short fight still. In, this is not relevant to anyone, but for example, in the, Mar- in the spring of 1991, there were uh, demonstrations in Belgrade against Milosevic. The streets were full. Young people were out there. They wanted to take the bastard down. But the army went out on the streets, tanks and all. And the two young people were killed, and yeah. that ended it. But I was working at a magazine at the time, and we were covering that. Fifteen pages of that magazine were was coverage of those. How did you get a job uh, at the magazine in the first place? Well, I was working as a freelancer at a, at a radio station called, it's called Youth Program. It's geared toward young people. And it's a kind of place, you know, it's a part of the uh, state radio institution, but we had a little corner there, it's sort of under the radar. This is the stupidity of rigid systems. They don't really take things seriously until it's too late. And so, you know, it's a kind of place they had a, an archive, a library of records in which the problematic songs were censored by a nail scratch on the actual record. This is how old I am. A vinyl records yeah. would, be, would be scratching a song that, is, that was unplayable. It uh, sounds kind of like a, a dystopian college record radio except station. We, right, except we brought our own records. And <laughs> <had> no idea. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and so we would play them. I had my own records. Yeah. I didn't need a state radio records. And yeah. so we did these things and did all kinds of subversive things. And we had a, a guy who who orchestrated all that, he's still in Sarajevo. Every time I go, I see him, and we all call him the boss. It's the only boss I ever listened to and respected. Was this magazine seen as radical that you were working at? Well, the magazine was formerly part of the uh, Socialist Youth Organization, but in the transitional period, the Socialist Youth Organization broke off from the system and established a liberal party. So the youth organization was converted into a liberal party just at the same time as we were working on this magazine. This is all six or seven months. Everything happened yeah. fast and intense. Did you and read Western magazines at this point? I, well, if, I, if I could get them. but like I could, it Was know. the New Yorker available? No, in, you know, no. no. So what was your model for like building a magazine? Then? I mean, not that everyone's model is the New Yorker. I, not like the stuff before. That yeah. was the model. It was very easy. It's an oppositional model. I mean, this is what I do not want to do. I was the cultural editor. had an incredible number, about 30% of the magazine. <laughs> I was in charge. I fought for this, that we have this. And I had a rule. I had to fight over with my editorial um, team. Well, many of them are friends still. 
that no one older than 27 can write in my pages. And there will be, because at some point the magazine was, um, you know, admired. People, respected writers older than 27 would call and ask to write on a page, and I would say no. I was going to say, like, Sorry. what happens when you had, like, a regular contributor uh, t- tipping at the 26th, the birthday there? Do right. you have to it retire people? It was a point to 27 because I was 27. <laughs> so it was going to was gonna No one age. older than me You were grandfathered in. I was the oldest. You were going to age right. as the yeah. revolution. That's right. So anyway, but actually, if someone older... Yeah. I wanted to write, I would talk the rest of my editorial team to yeah. put them in their pages. It yeah. was only my pages. And so it wasn't revolutionary, but it was we were we were changing things. I did not the upside and this might be a problem for <laughs> me now, the upside of coming of age in that context is I had no respect for the older ones. I yeah. had no respect for the previous generation of writers, yeah. the previous generation of thinkers, some of them very rarely and you know, very isolated um, and I still have respect for them, but I just, they were just spent. All of the credit was spent. So, were you an official chat? Like, I don't quite understand this. Like, kind of quasi. You're like a state magazine that's also no, sort of well, radical because it's all coming apart. So, no, at some point, there's no central authority, and everyone's there's this infighting. There's a sort of attempt at liberalization of the whole thing. Yeah, transition toward you know a different society. So there, there's, there's less control and state institutions that are large, there's even less control. So, and this is how it still operates. Then you find an autonomous space in many ways, but for different reasons. You find an autonomous space and group of people who are loyal to the idea or to one another, and then you operate in that autonomous space. The people who were in charge of the socialist youth organization, they were already looking at uh, starting a political party that would be part of a multi-party system. And so I wrote a, the cultural um, the cultural program for the foundational document for the platform of Liberal Party in Basel, which has, the party has vanished from the political scene. This was in 87, but they, I wrote the whole thing, what the cultural program of Liberal Party. I'm a card-carrying liberal. So were you writing for the magazine as well as editing 40 yeah, pages? Yeah, I, I, had a, I had a column for the magazine. I wrote these. I, it wasn't my byline, but the magazine was, the, you know, owned it, so to speak. Um, so yes, I, I wrote a lot of it. What what was the stuff you were writing about? I wrote a column called Sarajevo Republica, Sarajevo the Republic, because the the idea behind it it was you know half joking, only half joking that Sarajevo could be a, an autonomous, independent political space. Yeah. I still believe in city states. <laughs> I love the idea of city states, independent Chicago. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. We have the water. We don't have to talk to Arizona or any people like that. And so it's, it's becoming a force in uh, sort of libertarian tech politics in California yeah. now, too, where people want to do a floating city states. <laughs> when you go back and look at that, I mean, do you, have you, did you go back when you were writing about uh, uh, Sarajevo Republica and, and look at those columns? Yeah. Do you still uh, own the magazines? Like copies of them? I have them some in my boxes. But yeah. now I, I, because I, um, I write in Bosnia and have been writing in steadily since 96. Yeah. Uh, various columns. I have a couple of books of columns published in Basel, and I have enough columns for another two or three books. Just haven't got around to. Has it. that? Has any of that been translated to English? No. It's very difficult to translate because it's kind of local. It's slang heavy. Yeah. And they're columns. They are, you know, sometimes about soccer games. I would. I would imagine there would be like a massive amount of footnoting necessary for right. an American yeah. audience. Also, right. well, I guess that could be you know ten or fifteen or twenty that could actually apply. But yeah. even that, they would be sort of you know interesting nonfiction at best. In any case, in, one, in the first of those books, some of those columns are reprinted, so that exists somewhere. 
Is there a reason that you write about the world and, and politics more so in Bosnian and you write about your life more in English? There is, there is a reason. No one asks me to. I, I'm, I'm perfectly happy to write a, a column railing against various things. That's, <laughs> that's no problem. I've been begging my agent to get me a column somewhere. Yeah. Cause, uh, but that's, that's the thing is the writers here for this, the price of this privilege of being a writer and having book festivals and writing pos- uh, teaching positions and all this, that one gives a flying fuck what we think about anything. No, yeah. no, in France or in Europe, and this is not necessarily good <laughs> in various ways, but writers, you know, what do you think about the invasion of Iraq? What do you think about the massacre in, in, uh, in Paris? Yeah. And even if they don't ask them, they feel entitled and required and expected to express their thoughts and ideas in public about this. This yeah. is writers are part of the thinking uh, public. What's the French writer who wrote the, uh, he's written the, the novel that's sort of set in a dystopian... Um, well, well, Beck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was mentioned in the A1 New York Times story about the Paris attacks. Right. Can you imagine an American fiction writer being mentioned in a terrorism story? Well, I, I was in Paris in January when Charlie Hebdo shootings happened, and this was also the day of publication of the book, yeah. Submission, Submission, right? And the days before that, and the publication of the book, you could get the book on newsstands, right, that day. Um, but the week before that, there were editorials in all of the newspapers about this book, what is it, because they, not reviews, mind you, editorials in the editorial pages. And because in France, the public space operates differently so that each political position, at least many, is represented by a newspaper. So, you know, L'Humanité is communist, Libération is socialist, and Le Figaro is the right wing, and so on. Um, they all had a column about Welbeck, and the left wing berated him for his dystopian racism and whatnot. The right wing was warning, and then the whole thing blew up. Um, there are the downsides to it, which it's a different story, sort of public intel- writer as a public intellectual, because Welbeck is not a very good writer. All he has to do is, you know, submit a vessel in which his ideas are contained, but right. no beauty in it, no interest in the sentence, and so on. Any French writer or reader, you know, many French writers and readers, this is what they tell me. I cannot really read French all that well. In the United States, the price of comfort of being a writer is relatively comfortable, right? Is irrelevance. Unless you, you know, sell a millions of books and you get the respect of the market. Because in this country, the market validates everything, intellectual and any other way, from neurosurgeons to, to writers. If you're not, you know, made in the market, that's eh, all, you, know, you get commended for the effort. But other than that... If that's the sort of state of uh, being a writer in America, what kind of reactions do you get in Bosnia today from, hey, I'm a writer? What are the assumptions about who well, a writer know, is? I'm pretty well known in, in Sarajevo and Bosnia because I'm a public person. It's a small place, um, and, I, and I've been writing this column for many years. Bosnians are more likely to know my column than my fiction. And fiction, if they know, it's been translated, and they know it because they had read the columns. Yeah. But even that, I mean, it's, it, it's, it depends. You know, urban elites, people who read books and, and columns online, yeah. they would know this. But in the countryside, they might or might not know who I am. It, which I don't need to be known, but when I land in Sarajevo, in Sarajevo, as soon as I land, they start getting phone calls, you know, asking me to show up in TV shows and radio stations, newspapers. People yeah. walk up to me on the street and say, why don't you come in 45 minutes to our TV station? Is that, ad- I mean, is that addictive? Do you, do you ever think, um, instead of being uh, an anonymous man in Chicago, I could be a celebrity in Sarajevo? 
no, it's boring to be a celebrity. But this, this, this fades. They, yeah. It's part of the reason. It's not to say I'm so famous, but yeah. they don't have content. <laughs> <laughs> Your daughter could grow up as Alexander Hamon's son. No. You know, <laughs> that, that's easily celebrities easily spent anywhere, and Sarajevo it would be spent quickly. It's boring too. I, I need to have people. Yeah, have people to see and talk. I don't want to repeat the same story over and over again. And it's also I cannot stand. So I cannot see. It doesn't insult me, but if people are in awe of me, then I can't talk to them. Yeah, you know what I mean. And that to me is boring instantly. That's I have that I find no pleasure. Are you looking forward to that war and that portion of your life being in the distant past enough? You know that uh, the first question that someone you know has for you when they find out you're Bosnian is not about that. Well, I mean, people who have read my work and sort of self-perpetuating situation because yeah. they might ask me, it's important in my work. Which I am perpetuating so, uh, right, right now, right. I should know. But. No, I mean, it's, it's not unreasonable. I'm not insulted by that. And beyond that, no one really remembers anymore. There's so many wars in the meantime. Yeah. And as for me, and everyone I know, that's the central fact of our lives, and that's never going to weigh it. It's the trauma that we carry. It cannot be cured off. It's a, you know, it determined the outcomes of our lives in so many ways and uh, and in the way things are in Bosnia in Bosnia it is far from over it's not peace in Bosnia it's the absence of war uh, but it's absent by it's present by its absence it's there always as a uh, uh, what happened but also as, as a possibility and the, the the whole public space the whole society is so defined by it that any there's no way to imagine anything beyond it beyond uh, a society defined by war. Uh, people have a very, very hard time, and everyone, imagining what it could be like if it wasn't like this or like that. Uh, and that's that's the damage of war. Is that something you explore in fiction? In some ways, I explore different outcomes. That's the that's space of freedom. The tragedy of history for people in my part of the world and much of the world, in fact, and in fact, all of the world, when you think about it, is that it is so easy that history and random events define the outcomes of your life. Uh, you know, I am here with you because something happened in Bosnia 25 years ago. The um, causal organization of my life uh, is related to the causal organization of history, if you wish. And the American notion which I think is false in so many ways, but at least it's sustainable as an illusion, which it isn't where I come from at all, is that you you define the outcomes of your life. You just want it, you believe in yourself, yeah. and you just end up where you want to be. And this is this is the major, I don't feel like a foreigner here really in Chicago, certainly not. I don't feel like an outsider. But one thing, the gap is this. I can never begin to imagine believing that, that I, through my sheer will, and hard work and belief in myself can explore the opportunities in America. I simply cannot narrate my life in that way. I don't think that people who can are stupid. I think they're a little deluded, but we all are in various ways. Uh, but I just cannot believe that. And this is what ultimately, I'm an American citizen, but my mind, for that reason alone, is not American. Do you see your success as a writer as being a uh one of these random flukes, like getting that um, that trip to Chicago, or, or is that something that you can sort of embrace with the American zeal of, I, I worked hard for it and I, and I earned it? 
Well, as a, you know, there's an element of chance. This is what I mean. I happened to be in Chicago. If I hadn't been in Chicago, it would have been Sarajevo would have, could have been shot the first week yeah. of, uh, of the war or could have survived it and become an alcoholic because and carrying my PTSD. Yeah. One wrong step or one instance of bad luck and everything changes in your life. This, I cannot... I think it's part of the trauma, but it also I think it's a more realistic way to live. Is it? I do not. I cannot will the outcome of my life. I can just do my best to survive and then hope that it'll it'll turn out okay. But that's not how the world works. It is certain that you know that there are there are more opportunities in this country, statistically speaking, for anyone. It, it is hard to imagine that it works out for everyone. In fact, it does not work out. For everyone, people go through horrible things coming here and trying to adjust themselves. I lucked out, but I could see an alternative outcome in which I, as I always can, as part of my job as a writer, in which I uh, didn't make it out of Sarajevo in this country or, you know, to Miami last night. Anything can happen. Uh, you have a daughter. I hope I know this from your book. I have two uh, daughters. Two daughters. How do you tell a child uh, my worldview is of... Uh, chaos and uh, people in the slipstream of history. I feel like that American worldview is so, um, it's sort of almost like a pep talk to a child, or, that, or that's at least when I sort of got that, hey, you control your own destiny talk. Do you have trouble? Uh, <laughs> well, I, you know, that's, I have read up on these things in various ways. But the constant, constant encouragement of your child and telling your child that whatever they do is great, it really incapacitates them. Yeah. It disables them to confront the world. And so not that I berate my child for you know pedagogical reasons, but we do not hide f- the facts of the world f- from them. Um, my older daughter, I mean, she lived and remembers the death of her younger sister. To her, it's not a, a far-off right. thing. She rem- remembers some of it. We talk about it. There are pictures everywhere. She's a, In some ways, she's a more serious eight-year-old and some other eight-year-olds because she already knows that we could not, that my daughter, our daughter didn't die because we did not try hard enough to uh, save her life. Right. And do you, do you think that that um, event, which is the last story in your book, will serve in her life as one of these sort of pivot moments in her life, like you're, you're able to identify in your own life? I don't know. Her, her life is at the beginning and she will determine or try to determine her yeah. outcomes but it, it, it has defined her I mean she might not be aware of it and at the age of eight you do not analyze your life to you know organize it structurally and narratively but it, it's already important Yeah, it's important to her she, I mean she, the way she talks about it, the way she relates herself to everything it's, it, it's there already how she's going to think about it I do not know thank you Alexander Himmel thank you And that was the Long Form Podcast. Uh, thank you very much to my co-hosts, Max Zelinsky and Evan Ratliff, our editor, Jenna Weiss-Berman, our intern, Molly Bain. Uh, thanks very much to the Standard Hotel for setting this whole thing up and uh, giving me some awesome interviews. Again, it's standardhotels.com to see more from the fair and get the best rates at their hotels in New York, L.A., and Miami. Also get their app, One Night Standard. It's uh, spontaneous same-night stays at incredible rates. It's uh, the cheapest and most fun way to stay at Standard. Thanks to Howl.fm, that's H-O-W-L dot F-M, 
They are the Netflix for podcasts. You pay them $4.99 a month. They give you unlimited access to the archives of WTF with Mark Marin, Comedy Bang Bang, How Did This Get Made, as well as original miniseries like The Complete Woman and audio documentaries. I want you to go to howl.fm and use promo code LONGFORM. You will support this show and you'll get a free month. We'll be back next Wednesday. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to the Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts.